Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Well, good morning, Mike. How are you? Good. I'm well. I'm well. Always good to hear. So, By the way, for our listeners, we'll have a little fun here <laughs> with your question before we dive in. So there's that... Uh, I think it was uh, the Puritan pastor, Thomas Hooker, who said, God loveth adverbs. <laughs> now, an adverb is, for example, how are you doing today? And if you say, I'm doing good, good is an adjective, and uh, well is an adverb. And it's the idea that uh, all work is good, with a, save, as Luther put it, banking and prostitution. And uh, what God's more interested in is that you do it well. And so I'm often uh, smile and say, how are you doing today? He said, I'm doing good. Yeah, I want to say, well, tell me the good you're doing. <laughs> well is different when you say, how are you doing? You're doing well. For listeners, we, we do these podcasts on, at 5.30 on Friday morning. So we're, we're telling you the truth. If we're not doing well at 5.30, we'll tell you. <laughs> They may have picked up on <laughs> on some of the episodes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. not well. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we we actually just talked a couple of days ago, and uh, that conversation was really helpful for me. I figured we we'd take it to this a little bit, but um, you know, I, in that conversation, I started talking to you about my own natural inklings towards. Uh, okay, but so what's next? What's next for me? What 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 should what should I be doing in my life? Um, bigger picture, how am I making an impact? And you very wisely pointed you back towards um, this this stage of your life. You are building cultural capital, and that is what you're focused on. And that's going to take a long time. And and I was even thinking about that a little bit in terms of, you know. What, what does it look like to build cultural capital? And I think in, in a lot of ways it translates to finances. Sure, some people are going to go get uh, really successful in the business world and, and have those overnight successes. But most, most, if if not the vast majority, even the, the biggest businesses we know take 10, 10 years sometimes to really uh, become solidified as a business and actually, you know, quote, unquote, make it big. And so even those those uh, endeavors take time. And then I am continually anxious in wanting to just go uh, amass my wealth of cultural capital overnight and then exercise it. But the reality is just, just like, you know, financial uh, um, well-being, you know, that, that takes time. It takes time to, to save and invest and amass capital. And so it was helpful for me to hear that, but I, I figured it was a good conversation to talk through as a refresher. Um, as, as I pursue life right now, you know, just hit 30, and as many in my age, or in, in my kind of age range, that 20 to 35, who are still likely too young to, to have enough cultural capital exercise, 
uh, it might be helpful to have a refresher on, on why we're doing this and, uh, maybe some of the, yeah, just, I guess that a reminder on the why. Well, uh, yeah, it's a good conversation. And, um, if we're talking about why we're doing this as Christians, it's to love God and love our neighbor. And, um, <clears throat> so loving God has a great deal to do with, um, loving the things that he loves and loving them in the order in which he loves them. So we've talked about this before, but the great thrust of discipleship, the why is to be a prepared bride, as Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 11 too, and a prepared bride, having been betrothed, married to Christ, we are to prepare, i.e. that's discipleship, to be presented at the wedding feast as a prepared bride. And the preparation, Kathy and I just took a couple uh, through this over the summer, is that you have the same loves to become one. Because ultimately, as, as Augustine said, my weight is my love, and it carries me wherever I go. That at the end of the day, you're going to do what you delight in. So hopefully, we're doing this because we delight in the things that God delights in. And, and uh, he delights in our neighbors and because he made them. And uh, therefore, we are to love them. So the why is to love them. Now, having said that, uh, it's not as simple as it sounds. So uh, loving the, 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 the model that's in place for a lot of not-for-profits, a friend of mine recently called it, it correctly so, he's a pastor in town, it's the charity model. And the charity model is how we love. And so we uh, give them all these things. And in fact, that's uh, the King James uh, translates love as charity. And that's not very loving in many cases. We're not really loving them. What you do, what it takes to actually love someone requires some capital. There's uh, several forms of capital. So the one you're talking about here is called cultural capital. And cultural capital is the ability to be taken seriously by those who have the power and influence to shape cultures. Hence, they're denoting to you that you also have cultural capital. Capital is, we often think of it, as you said, as primarily financial capital. And financial capital is the ability to get things done. Bill Gates has a great deal of financial capital. And he's investing it in uh, trying to eradicate developing world diseases. And as you know, uh, so when because of that, when he, Bill and Melinda Gates talk, people listen. It's the old E.F. Hutton commercial. So capital is the ability to speak and people listen. They're taken seriously. And Christians often don't give a great deal of thought to these various forms of capital i.e. primarily um, cultural capital. Yeah, um, as always, I love how you started that because it's a reminder. The, I mean, the core why behind this is, is to love. And it's uh, easy to maybe hear for, for listeners or to even get caught up in the, uh, the endeavor to amass cultural capitals for power. But it's not. I mean, it's to, it's to have 
it's to have the ability to do things to make change, but it's it's not for for power, for selfish gain, or selfish ambition. The intent is is for love to be able to love your neighbor well. And uh, that's and right. That's, that's I mean that can it is be power over and stated. Right, right. But it's and, it's not um, for the intent of power. That's right. It's it's power in the sense that that um, Jesus gives us the opportunity to have this kind of power, but it's why I like the uh, longer ending to the Lord's Prayer we find, I think it's in Matthew, because at the end of this magisterial Lord's Prayer, where we are actually um, almost command God, your kingdom come now, it closes with, but yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. I call it the great yielding because uh, this power can go to your head. And uh, as, re as you know, it's actually properly trained. It's to go to your body, your entire body, that it's properly trained to wield power properly. If it goes to your head, and that's about as far as it goes, more often than not, people who accrue power value that um, that type of capital they earn far more than God does, or they begin to idolize it. So I'll give you a quick example, Pat, um, <clears throat> because um, this isn't to throw off listeners, but um, I would... Uh, I would identify as a an evangelical Catholic, little c. Evangelical meaning the necessity of having a personal conversion to Jesus Christ. Catholic meaning universal, that we are part of the bride of Christ. And there is a universal church with traditions and wisdom that is handed down and we embrace what's called received wisdom. So too often in the, um, now the reason I say evangelical Catholic is uh, quite often people who are raised in Catholic, capital C, Roman Catholic, find it didn't have much of the fervency and they become evangelical. I get it. Evangelicals on the other side uh, often don't know hardly anything about the church before 1998. And uh, so if there's any received wisdom through these 2,000 years, they're pretty much naive about it. And their goal is to often to be, as I put it, um, uh, relevant, uh, contemporary, uh, engaging, uh, blah, blah, blah. And there's a naivety there that's um, astonishing. So we're, I'm an evangelical Catholic. And uh, so... In the evangelical tradition, which form of capital do you think is most popular? And by the way, there are, first of all, can you list what are the types of um, capital that people can accrue? Uh, so there's obviously financial capital, there's right. cultural capital or, or right. social capital. There's also political capital mm -hmm. that Good. could spill over. Uh, 
maybe intellectual capital, but that's yeah. probably more niche. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Those are a couple. Yeah. Those are, those are the main ones. And um, so of those, which is, which do you think tends to be more the forte of uh, the evangelical, not evangelical Catholic, but evangelical tradition? I would guess money, particularly when it comes to raising funds for some kind of ministry thing. Nope. Hmm. Actually, actually, oh, the great. Okay. Keep so guess again. Uh, may, maybe political capital. No. Oh man. <laughs> Zero for two here. <laughs> it's okay. It's early. Now, if you're with on this one, you are out. Oh god. Strike, strike three, and the podcast is over. Cultural capital. No. Oh my god. We got to end here. The social. Oh. Okay. Okay. Why? Well, how would you differentiate between social and cultural? Oh, yeah, very good, very good. Social is also called relational capital. Mm. So I'll give you an example. Is when I was a pastor back in the 1800s. Um, so because of uh, relationships I had and friendships, I could give the opening prayer in the Senate, but I was politely asked to leave when legislators got down to business. Yeah, so the kind of the core drive, like relational evangelism, jumps out to me as kind of the one of the pieces there. Yes, it's primarily uh, we do outreach by building relationships with people, which is a form of capital, and you earn that. For example, in work we do often with the disadvantaged, and so we earn capital with them, and, and they become receptive. But we don't have the cultural capital to change the systems that have trapped them in poverty. So we often can cite individuals who have benefited from our efforts or have been lifted out of poverty, but they haven't, but we haven't introduced systems that lift entire cities or populations in cities out of systemic poverty. So relational capital is actually the easiest to accrue because you make friends or you attempt to you build relationships rather. They all, I make a distinction between relationships and friends. I think that Jesus did. So you build relationships and those have those are important and that's a form of capital. But it uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't translate necessarily into cultural capital. Cultural capital is the ability. It's the actually the power or influence that to implement structural change. For example, in in a city that will eradicate poverty. We, with relational capital, generally try to remediate some of the outcomes of poverty, but we don't actually change the very structures or systems creating it. And I'm not diminishing social or relational capital, but it tends to be our forte. Now, as to the other ones you did mention, and was having some fun with you because there are aspects of it, and it's in this regard. Nathan Hatch 
uh, a historian, says the driving impulse of evangelicalism is populism. Do you know what populism is? Uh, a non-scientific definition, I would guess at, would be something like um, making a thought mainstream, you know, a popular thought, something along those lines. Yeah, it's pretty close. It's, it, populism uh, generally disdains or, or doesn't understand the institutions, and it's the idea you can change the world from the ground up through a, a population, just uh, uh, passionate individuals, bottom-up, can change the world. And so you uh, move through the stirring of the popular sentiments. And so populism um, doesn't really understand cultural power. And unfortunately, I think it accounts for a great deal for why 80% of evangelicals voted for the president, for Donald Trump, is he's very populist. And uh, populism tends to dismiss or even destroy institutional norms because it knows what it's doing it's right it's superior to the institution now uh, president trump has been an unmitigated disaster on many many levels and yes many evangelicals would have voted for him simply because they felt he had some sort of interest in or some i wouldn't call it a commitment to the life of the unborn but at least was going to appoint judges and in that regard, he has done that. And in some ways also, his view of business and commerce tends to align with um, those in business and commerce. But primarily, it's populism. And populism is, uh, I don't give a flying flip about all these institutions. I want, we get the right president who voted and get the right judges, the country will turn around and we'll, we'll make the country great again. We'll return to God. What's uncanny is the, uh, and uh, again, listeners, we try to run here what's called a bipartisan podcast. But the irony is when the uh, Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton, President Clinton scandal was going on, evangelicals came together and signed a charter, which essentially said character counts and we should never be supporting a president whose private conduct and character is not biblical. Um, I mean, I'm really doing a crude job of summarizing it. But all of a sudden, when the shoe was on the other foot, uh, we were very, uh, when I say we, I should actually say evangelicals, I being an evangelical Catholic, but evangelicals were pretty strident in their criticism of President Clinton because private conduct counted. Now, you have... Uh, People like Billy Graham's son, Franklin, saying that President Trump is God's man. It's stunning. It's astonishing. It's populism. You may or may not recall, <clears throat> probably don't because you're a youngin, but uh, 1976, if I have the year correct, Time magazine, the cover was the year of the evangelical because it was an evangelical in office. Billy Carter had been, not Billy Carter, <laughs> Jimmy Carter. <laughs> big, big difference between those two. But uh, Jimmy Carter is evangelical. And uh, there was just this idea, this faith now is going to influence um, direction of the country. And while the presidency does, 
the Carter presidency was appalling in many ways, but it was certainly it exposed that this uh, this uh, evangelical faith that uh, Carter and his wife sincerely embrace um, is also in many ways, in my opinion, would be seriously not informed by historic Christianity. So that's what we mean by relational capital tends to create people who are populist and populist generally are dismissive of or don't understand all these other forms of capital. That's why populists are famous for saying, if they're Christians, well, God can do anything. So if God wants to, he could take Pat Brown and make him the next president. Yeah, it's a good, I mean, it's a good point because um, I'm thinking the the idea of, of loving my neighbor, just in my personal upbringing, which was in the evangelical church tradition, was definitely along the lines of um, either not well-defined or blurry uh, or related directly to sharing the gospel. And that was sort of the, the frame of loving my neighbor. Um, yeah. The other core emphasis was on sharing the gospel and uh, reaching out to others, and which which definitely translated to relational capital. But that was kind of the extent of it. That's where uh, things started and stopped. And there there may have been other pieces to that that I didn't pick up on. But um, I suspect if I talk to many other peers that grew up in a similar background, it may be the same. And and so that idea of First, loving my neighbor intangibly. What does that look like? Um, but then second, expanding that out to systems and thinking about systems and cultural capital was just never on my radar. And so when you first introduced that to me, it was sort of an aha moment because it connected a lot of the dots of, of why we're here and and what my goal is as a, as a uh, man entering the world. Uh, I met you when I was in college, kind of preparing for the next phase of life but it was really helpful there. Um, but also, uh, you know, you mentioned interestingly, like how I, how I began to understand that was, was, uh, more of your lament about where things are at today. And that's when things really clicked for me. I was under the impression that, uh, more of a populist mindset, as you mentioned, where, well, the world would change if just everyone understood the gospel. That's when we'd see the world change. But you started to open my eyes to more, uh, evidence of our lack of cultural capital today and for me the quick example translated to you know media I understood other evangelical frustrations with the way media was going the direction media was going movies and tv and how it included all this bad stuff you know as opposed to uh being being cleaner level of movies and how Hollywood was um going this bad direction and I started to realize after talking to you that's great evidence of uh, a lack of cultural capital we can complain about it all we want but where are the Christian uh, people making great movies where are the the Christians who are directing excellent movies and writing great stories that they just seem to be absent in Hollywood that's how we could change Hollywood instead of complaining about it and trying to uh, <laughs> make our own quote-unquote Christian movies. We could mm -hmm. also be making good movies 
that have also happen to have uh, Christianity, you know, latent in there. Um, are, are there other examples similar to that that you can think of? Oh yeah, and uh, you know the let's uh, let's have uh, um, entertainment is a vivid example, by the way. So that it's helpful, and I, yeah, uh, great examples, and it's it, and there have been people over the last uh, thirty years, evangelicals, who have recognized this and are. Um, trying to work their way in. By the way, um, uh, David McCullough, a famous historian, pick up his book if you ever, listeners, if you want to, uh, which has Journey in its title. I can't remember, but it's basically uh, Americans in Paris. Um, so just Google that and you can figure it out. You'll get there. But uh, the thrust of it is the uh, you'll see in there that uh, at the inception of the Mormon faith, one of the things they did was they took their best and brightest in terms of artists and sent them to Paris. Why? <laughs> I don't know. To amass cultural capital. Rodney Stark in one of his books suggests that Mormons are actually closer in, their, in what they're practicing to try to change the world. They're actually closer to the early church than today's church. And one of the things that Mormons do particularly well is build businesses, Marriott, JetBlue, so on and so forth, that uh, are, are known for uh, their corporate culture. And uh, also um, in the arts. And there is a strong Mormon presence uh, in terms of the actors and actresses and, and Broadway. So, uh, and there's some... Uh, uh, really good uh, music out there, groups, popular groups today, who are Mormon. Um, hmm. So there's an example of understanding cultural power. But here's two quick examples. First of all, we just had the Supreme Court nominee, Jay, uh, Amy Comey Barrett, uh, the confirmation hearings. Barrett is a Catholic. Uh, an active Catholic, um, but notice where she went to school. She went to law schools that give her cultural power. In other words, name an evangelical Protestant law school. Yeah, I got nothing. Yeah, well, they do exist. And there's been some efforts recently um, to uh, launch those types of schools. But you, we can, you can just tell that, uh, by the way, every, everyone on the Supreme Court, every judge, justice, went to a Protestant college, Protestant law school. But those were, that was Protestantism, Protestant, uh, forget saying that this early in the morning. Those were Protestant colleges that came out of the Protestant faith prior to what C.S. Lewis once said was the Great Divide. So the what were called Old Western Christianity that comes through Europe and so on and so forth. New Western Christianity, Lewis said, began sometime after 1816. And it's really marked by the evangelical. And so when e, uh, the evangelical faith in America, and so when these older Protestant colleges went liberal, evangelicals left 
and they formed their own colleges. One example is they left Princeton and formed Westminster. So a lot of people have heard of Princeton. Have you heard of Westminster? I have, but yeah. that's only some connected, yeah. That's right. But most haven't. And second, uh, they didn't uh, start law schools. Much as you pointed out, Pat, was because the point was to train people from the ministry to go reach the world. Law schools, small school. I mean, and plus, it's expensive. Law schools, they're, they're difficult to start. They have to be accredited. They require a, a accredited faculty. Uh, they're, it's just an expensive proposition. Yet, kudos to the Catholic faith, Roman Catholic, that they have sustained those institutions. And if you look at the uh, rankings, you notice in the top, at least the top 15, the first one that comes up is Georgetown Law School. Catholic, that's a Catholic university. You also have Notre Dame. <clears throat> so these are examples of uh, a faith that's not driven by populism. So one example would be uh, that uh, the Supreme Court, which used to be entirely Protestant, and now it is, uh, trying to get the numbers right, but it's, it's, it's Catholic and Jewish, primarily Catholic. Why? Catholics, if you... We always say bad example makes bad law. I know there's a lot of bad examples out there of bad Catholics. I get it. But bad example makes bad law. If you look at the best of practicing Catholics, they take the cultural mandate seriously. And in taking the cultural mandate seriously, they understand you can't make cultures if you don't have cultural capital. And so Amy, uh, Justice Barrett <clears throat> has amassed or accrued that capital by operating inside of systems that recognized the capital she brings. And people always want to invest capital in greater return, to get a greater return. Hence, she was promoted through the system because those inside the system, in the institution of law, Injustice recognized she can bring capital to increase the return on properly functioning courts. Hence, there she is. And um, we're recording this at the time where she has not yet been confirmed, but it's expected that she will be confirmed. But uh, as much as she is an ardent and she would actually be in more of an evangelical type of Catholic tradition by being part of what's called people of praise. But I think she would find it ludicrous to say she's there uh, only because she loves Jesus, her heart is right with God, and God can do anything. She probably wouldn't have made it through the confirmation hearings had that not been had that been her attitude. Instead, both friend and foe recognized that her answers and her responses to the few times she actually heard a question <laughs> from uh, the political posturing in her examiners. Uh, she was bright, articulate. She was uh, well-prepared. So there's one example right there, Pat, that's, uh, that is more, might be more accessible because a lot of us tend to think the longer we go, you know, I'll never make it to Hollywood and got to change these films. And it's true. But that takes a long time. Just look at the confirmation hearings. Here's another thing to look at. So 
We live in Annapolis, Kathy and I. Annapolis has, my numbers may not be exact, but somewhere I think 13 or 14 or 15 housing projects. These uh, housing projects are exactly as you imagine them. Crime, dilapidated, dirty, so on and so forth. A lot of churches in this area, to their credit, have over the course of uh, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, maybe even longer, have built relational capital, befriended with what is an almost 100% African-American population, has provided food and tutoring and sports and recreation and done socials with them and so on and so forth. These are all what's called social capital. The first of these housing projects was closed up this past year by the city. Why? Can you take a guess as to why the city closed them and has in its plan the eventual closing and retrofitting every one of these? Do you know why? Uh, I could guess a number of reasons. One, to uh, maybe, hopefully, uh, build better ones, but but probably more than likely allow others to come in and, and replace the, that housing, particularly others of higher income levels. Yeah, that would be some of the outcomes. It's basically they can't afford them. Mm. Oh, interesting. So sure. in the first one, um, people got... Uh, were notified a decent amount of time ahead of time, but uh, they were going to be closing, they were going to be evicted, the city was going to provide. And so the city did come to some churches to help with um, relocating, not relocating where they go, because that's not the jurisdiction of, of a church. But here was my point to uh, one particular church. All your relational capital you built over 10 years just went splat. And now you have people that are just... It's all the city does go and push out everyone. Push out is too strong a term. They can't do that legally. They can legally say, and here's the plan, by the way, private developers do have the financial capital and they're being, uh, these are being redone with a sunset clause on these projects when they are rebuilt a sunset clause on them having subsidized units. In other words, as I understand it, some 10 or 15 years out, they could be entirely private. No more subsidized housing. Now, if my understanding of it is correct, and I've asked a lot of people on this, best, the best reading I have on it, it solves the problem for the city, can't afford them. Second, Annapolis could be a town one day that has no public housing. Now, there are those out there who say, and that would be a good thing. Um, let's set that aside for the moment. Our point is this. The faith community in this town has never built the cultural capital to actually go to the city and say, give us one of the projects. We actually will make a structural change that will allow for a private-public mix it will be profitable. Annapolis will have a private-public mix in a, these rebuilt projects 
with a sunset on public, at which point the owners have the right legally to go entirely private, market rate apartments versus publicly subsidized, at which point, yes, to your point, you will price out uh, lower income families who will be almost uniformly African-American. Yeah, so to flush that out some more, what what you're referring to is uh, not necessarily that an answer is, is bad or good. So in this situation, yeah, is, is a, a sunset plan on public housing good? Well, some would say yes, some would say no. But what stands out to me is the lack of an answer. So if, one, the church, it's not like the state goes to the church to ask, hey, how, how do we do this? Or, or what would you recommend us do in this situation? So one, there's a clear evidence of a lack of cultural capital. There's also a lack of uh, potentially evangelical Christians in situations of power that uh, the state would go to. So are there uh, these investment properties led by believers that uh, the state would, would uh, recognize and ask, hey, how, how should we do this? So there's a lack there, but then there's also a lack of an answer. So even as a, as a, as a Christian, I have no idea what the answer is. And, and unless you and I have had conversations in the past, uh, I probably never would have thought, oh, well, Christians ought to have an answer for how to solve that problem. That, that doesn't sort of register with my upbringing of, of a, a frame of my faith. And so there's the, the lack of answer. The lack of an answer is, is also evidence of a lack of understanding of cultural capital. Because you ask a church today what to do about that. I'm not sure they'd have an answer. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good summary, Pat. And that um, there is an answer, or at least there's one example, rather. Um, so if uh, listeners, if you just Google, and I know, by the way, we may not be doing that one day because there's a lawsuit now for the <laughs> Department of Justice. Let's file a lawsuit against Google uh, for being a monopoly. <laughs> but for the time being, Google, uh, just Google. <laughs> well, you still can. <laughs> uh, there you go. Grand family, grand families, and then Lifeway Church, and then Washington, D.C. Grand families, one word. And what that means is in the African-American community, the, the, um, one of the things that uh, is destroying that community is high rates of male incarceration. Again, set aside for the time being right now today why these rates are so high. But the fact is, they are. So what happens is, more often than not, the wage earner for that family is now in prison. Because of that, you have a collapse of, on average, the uh, income of another four people. They all fall into a systemic, they all become trapped in systemic poverty. Now you often have the case of both the mom and the dad are incarcerated or are uh, on drugs on the streets. So you have grandparents raising kids, grand families. 
So if you Google this article, it's in the Washington Post three, four, five years ago, some 25 or 30 years ago, the pastor at Lifeway Church in D.C., drug driven by him many times, actually began to work on a structural solution. So Google the article and you'll find what, what uh, the result was a couple of years ago, the opening of Park West, which is a private public uh, condominium project. So at the end of the day, it is a profitable, designed to be profitable, and has a percentage of the uh, development is subsidized for grand families. And it's the idea that you can create a community in a development because the problem with grand families is grandparents get worn out. But what if you actually had a network in a housing development of sharing some of that burden, which is very biblical? Now, get this, Pat. The project over the years developed required an overlapping network of institutions, many of them governmental, many of them financial, and also developers to build this, and it cost $90 million. Here's the difference when, here's why we're evangelicals in general are not savvy about cultural power, but could be, is it costs a lot of money. So I was with a friend of mine, a rector um, at a church not too far from here, long-time friend, wonderful man. This past weekend, took his daughter up to a Juilliard. Why Juilliard? Cultural capital. That's it. So he's raised his children, their two daughters, he and his wife, have raised their kids to hopefully to try to love the things God loves in the order in which he loves them. He loves music. And uh, they want music that reflects what uh, is often called the good, the true, and the beautiful. And there's all sorts of music can do that rap and blues and reggae and rock and I guess I could come up with a few more R's if I tried right now, but I'm not going to. But so does orchestral, orchestras. And, um, but you don't get to be a part of the Philharmonic, you know, if you go to uh, most any school or even an arts school. She's a, she, she qualified to go to Juilliard. They dropped her off. Funny story about them. Um, there was a. They had to beat the beat the band that was that was coming into New York City. That if you went to New York, you would drop off your kids. You had to go home and quarantine for two weeks. And mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, we met where we were fairly far apart and all that jazz and just chatted and and. Um, we were outside in the whole nine yards, but um, they, uh, 
he, he recognizes cultural capital. So the, uh, now here's a, here's just a, so again, if you're a listener, you're everything, wow, I can't, you're talking about Juilliard and you're talking about law schools. Uh, it can be as simple as this. We've, we cited this example before and um, my wife Kathy is comfortable with me sharing this. I mean, I do applaud her, but she would never share a lot of this. With the outbreak of the pandemic, um, somewhere somewhere around 75% of uh, Hispanics lost their jobs because they're mostly businesses in the trunk of a car. And Hispanics lack a certain form of cultural power because uh, many of them are not documented. So when you're not documented, you can't apply for a loan. You can't, you can't purchase a home. You, just, you can see how things just begin to collapse. And so what you have is two, three, four families sharing an apartment. Often that apartment is on the other side of what's called the digital divide. They don't have internet. And now all of a sudden, all the kids are out of school. And mom and dad are no longer, the, the cleaning service no longer can go into the homes. Landscapers are not being asked to come by. What do you do? So in one week, she and some other teachers and network people cobbled together a pop-up pantry, which now has had total number of uh, cars that come through this this big circle everyone's wearing masks distancing and what have you but they get fresh produce because there's high incidences as you know in the hispanic and the african-american community of type 2 diabetes which is 95 percent of which is preventable by exercise and proper diet and yet in these communities there tends to be high rates of fried food fatty food unhealthy food so fresh produce big boxes Believe me, I've schlepped these boxes all summer. I know exactly how much they weigh. I know what they're about. They come from food bank. Fresh chicken, um, diapers. I mean, it is, Pat, it's astounding. I'm sure in actual cash gifts and like and in-kind gifts, this thing could be approaching $75,000 to $100,000 has been given. So two weeks ago, the mayor came by and awarded Kathy and the pop-up pantry, but she, they gave her the city citation, um, kind of, you know, what they often do, and they say, we give you the keys to the city. But that's called in 20 weeks, that's amassing cultural capital. When the city recognizes you're doing something to make this, to improve this city. Now, again, with relational capital, churches often talk about all the things they're doing in outreach and the disadvantaged communities and all the things they're doing to help. But I rarely see that they're recognized. And you have to be careful. It can, often, it can almost become patting ourselves on the back. We get to know this person, we tutor this person. And again, I'm not minimizing those things. But the fact is, None of those efforts are scalable and none of them provide systemic solutions. 
the pop-up pantry potentially has the capacity to be scalable. There are many of them popped up throughout the county and can actually morph into something that would be um, more permanent in terms of um, systemic solutions, but that has a ways to go. So we're engaging people who are better at systemic thinking. But to our point for what we're talking about today is, uh, you know, I've been to city council meetings and there are those uh, organizations or even individuals who are recognized by the city. Well, the city has cultural power and what they're doing is conferring upon these individuals cultural power. Hence, you could probably then more than you're more than likely to be able to make a presentation to the city in the future regarding systemic solutions. So that's called cultural power. And that was simply by uh, starting a pop-up pantry. And uh, I, um, I have to say it because no one else is going to say it. We're afraid to say it. All this is happening while over in another part of town, a coalition of some 15 not-for-profits has been meeting and planning for almost the, for the past year. To date, have yet to raise any money, and they're just coming upon their grand strategic plan. Still haven't done anything, but they're planning and praying. See, for me, Pat, if you, the first time I went to the pop-up pantry, it did impact my life. And it impacted my life because I was hot, sweaty, stinky. Now, I went, I'm not exaggerating. I went home and wrung out my shirt. I could put a towel because I didn't want to soil the, the pretty little seats in my pretty little car. But I thought, my God, I wouldn't want to live this way. I thought, well, if you don't want to live this way, do you think these people do? So how would they feel if they learned that 15 organizations representing, we'll say, a couple thousand people are really planning and praying about doing something about this? They're really with you. They really love you. Kathy had an interesting comment in the middle of summer, rather toward late in the summer. Um, we'll leave the names out, but one of the driving actors in this um, Papa Pantry, great guy, he used to work for a large international food service and got laid off with the pandemic. But um, he is there busting his ass every Friday and Saturday. And we're talking about when we say this, I mean, this is, this is now well over, I think, like 30,000 almost entirely Hispanic individuals have come through. And yes, again, the cynic could say, yeah, some of those people are game in the system. So what? So he um, invited uh, a group of us, I think there were maybe 10 or so, that had been consistently... Um, leading or in this thing. And when I say in this thing, it's because like showing up on Friday to repackage 1,400 pounds of chicken from a semi-trailer truck into these Ziploc bags so that we can speed up the process on Saturday and simply hand a family 
a good amount of chicken, but not give them the entire box that comes from a food bank because that would just overwhelm the family. Mm. And, uh, you know, you're doing this with people who set up folding tables on a parking lot behind a restaurant where homeless people are up in the woods and it's stinking and it's filthy back there on the ground. And you open up this tractor trailer and the cold air rushes out and it's already 90 degrees and you go, hmm, I think I'd rather work in the truck today. But you set these things up and we're wearing masks and gloves and we sanitize before and we sanitize afterward and we put these things in giant coolers provided by this guy, which takes two strong people like you to lift them back into the truck and stow them so that Saturday morning when they come to get all the produce and I don't know if you've ever walked inside a semi-tractor trailer, a trailer, floor to ceiling, refrigerated, potatoes, eggs. It's It'll change your life, Pat. Wow. And we'll clear the entire thing out in one day. So this has impacted my life because this man selects a ton of us and says, hey, guys. Uh, he just got rehired again by the company. And he said, I want to not only celebrate that, but um, you, you're kind of, he was basically saying, this is my community, you guys. Now, these are people of faith, no faith, differing faith. And so we went over to his house. Just a real simple house with a backyard, all this garden. Found out he went to culinary school. He put on a dinner. It was unbelievable. So, yes, we did the social distancing and all that. But when we drove away, Kathy said, you know, we haven't spent five and a half hours in an evening like this since COVID started. This is our community. And it's a community because you were doing something. Mm. And that's that took all summer, but this is accruing so, um, so cultural capital it's been written up in a couple of uh, papers that's all called cultural capital so again for listeners it's not it's not impossible but cultural capital as you can tell is already probably like i said between in-kind gifts and money money raised whether i would guess it's probably past 100k easily and again we just think relational capital it's it's cheaper it's more inexpensive. It's 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 necessary. It's important, but it's called it's necessary but insufficient if you want to change the world. And this is part of what drove, I think, in some ways, um, Christian Smith, the uh, Notre Dame professor, used to be at the University of North Carolina. I think what part of what drove him to Catholicism, as he wrote eloquently in, in many of his books, is. We're given to addressing symptoms of the problem, but not the structures creating them. So we're great at acts of mercy, which are essential, but they're inadequate if you want to actually change the world. It'd be like going to see a doctor and you've got a, you have something inside, you have a, a staph infection, and he treats you with Band-Aids, they bring you some immediate relief. But the fact of the matter is you're in trouble unless you get in there and actually 
change something that's happening to you systemically.